I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Our guest this time is Gerald Seib, the Wall Street Journal Washington Bureau Chief since 2004. He went to work for the Journal right out of college. Uh, He was at the Dallas Bureau. Uh, He then came to Washington, covered the State Department, the Pentagon, the White House. He has also reported from overseas, from the Middle East and Cairo. Five days he spent in an Iranian jail, among his other adventures as an overseas correspondent. He is now free and writes a column <laughs> weekly uh, for the journal. Jerry, thank you Thanks. very much. And for some days I feel more free than others, but. <laughs> exactly. Let's start with the news. You know, before Donald Trump became uh, fascinated with walls, there was another famous wall uh, to those of us in journalism. We all knew about it, and that was the wall the Wall Street Journal said it had uh, between what it called church and state. And what they meant was that the editorial department, the people who write the opinion pieces, are on one side of that wall, and the guys who cover the news are on the other side. And it was always a point of pride to everybody I've ever known who worked at the Journal, and I really believe it existed. But lately, we've been hearing some reports that there may be a breach in that wall, and some of your reporters are a little worried about the Murdochs trying to exert some influence in the newsroom. Tell us about that. Well, I'm happy to report that the wall exists. I'm I'm firmly on the news side as where I've been for 39 years, and it's not any different. And I think the What's changed is Donald J. Trump has changed. I mean, look, he's he's arrived and basically changed all the rules, uh, made everybody question the way things work in politics, in journalism, and in the country in some ways. And so I think people have have wondered uh, how do you cover Donald Trump toughly, uh, with, you know, with determination but also fairly. And everybody's trying to achieve that balance uh, as we are. And you know, it, I think in the news business, some people are coming down on different sides of that question, trying to figure out how do you handle this guy? And I think that's true for us, and it's been the subject of some debate in our newsroom. I think the irony and the assertion that you know, maybe the editorial page is creeping into the news pages. As anybody who's actually read our editorial page over the last year and a half knows it has been incredibly hard on Donald Trump. I mean, I'm not, I don't write for the, for the edit page. I can only interpret it as others do. But it conveys a very conservative point of view. And Donald Trump is not a classic conservative by any means. And so the, our editorial page has been very hard on him on immigration policy, for example, on trade policy, and, and just on, the, on this, his style of governance. And, you know, I, I think if uh, Mr. Murdoch wanted to influence the way the Wall Street Journal is treating Donald Trump, maybe he would start with the editorial page. But they're, they're whacking away at him on a fairly regular basis. So I think we're all in this to do journalism the way we've always done it. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I read the journal every day. I read the journal's editorials every day. And uh, there's no question that uh, from time to time they really take out after Donald Trump and they pull no punches. And uh, they're very good at what they do. I think the journal's editorial page, to me, 
is kind of the voice of the establishment conservative movement. I mean, that's the way I see it. And while sometimes I don't agree with their editorials, they're well thought out, uh, they're reasoned, and above all, they're very well written, yeah. as is the case with, uh, with the news articles that appear on the other side of the wall, on the side of the paper where you work. But you know, people who work at Fox News tell me uh, that since Roger Ailes departed, that uh, Rupert Murdoch is taking a very active role there, uh, that they know he's there. And uh, you're telling me that's not the case? I mean, is, is it the two Murdoch boys who basically are the ones in charge of the journal? Or, or how actually does that work? Well, the, you have to remember that Fox News and the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones uh, have divided into two separate companies. Fox News is, is, a, is a company stands over here. Dow Jones, which owns the Wall Street Journal, is now a separate company that stands over here. Uh, Rupert Murdoch has been heavily involved in, as you say, uh, kind of managing Fox News since Roger Ailes left. Um, the CEO of, of Dow Jones is actually Robert Thompson, somebody who worked for has worked for the News Corporation for a long time. My editor is Jerry Baker. You know, obviously Rupert Murdoch is uh, you know is the chairman of both companies and is involved in in the management of both companies. But a lot of his day to day time is now being spent on the Fox News uh, side, not on the Dow Jones Wall Street Journal side. But you're satisfied that uh, both sides of the story are getting told yeah. uh, in the news pages of the journal. I am, I am, and I'll I'll tell you. There's a, I'll give you an ex- a, a good example. So one of the one of the things that everybody has grappled with is how to deal with the fact that Donald Trump, now President Donald Trump, says things that are simply not true. And there was a debate. There's been a debate about whether you should say he lied about something or whether you should just say he he said something that was not true. And I think we've kind of come down on the, let's just tell the readers this is not accurate and let them decide whether he lied or he just doesn't know what he's talking about. So there was an example today in which President Trump begins the day, as he often does, with a Twitter storm, you know, pre-7 a.m., around 7 a.m., a series of tweets that attacked his predecessor, Barack Obama, on various things, including the release of prisoners from Guantanamo Bay, the prison at Guantanamo Bay. And he tweeted this morning that, President Obama released 122 vicious prisoners from Guantanamo Bay that uh, returned to the battlefield as terrorists. Turns out that's not really true. What actually happened is that 122 out of 693 detainees were confirmed to have uh, re-engaged in terrorism activities, but 113 of them were released by President Bush, George W. Bush, not by uh, Barack Obama. Only nine of them were released by Barack Obama. So we wrote a story that said in the lead that he kept up his attacks on President Obama with this Twitter attack and misstated a key fact in doing so. And then later went back in the story and in, in some detail walked through the accounting of what's happened to prisoners from Guantanamo Bay and pointed out that, in fact, his 122 figure is wrong. 113 of those were released by the Bush administration and only nine were released by Barack Obama. Now, does he know what he's talking about? Does he know he's misstating the facts or does he simply not understand what's going on? You can decide. But we're telling the readers, this is what he said. These are the facts. And this is where there's a separation between the two. And I think that's what you do as a journalist. Uh, that's that's very interesting. But we're finding this more and more. Why do you think these tweets come late at night or early in the morning? Is there some pattern here? I, there seems to be a pretty direct correlation between things he's watching on news, on TV, cable news shows, and what he has to say on his Twitter feed. I mean, the, the t- early morning Twitter feeds seem to grow 
almost directly out of his observations from watching the morning news. <laughs> it's, it's as if, you know, you were having a conversation with your spouse over breakfast while the morning news is on in the background. And instead of it being a private conversation, it just comes out on Twitter. Now, you, some people find that you know, refreshing or charming. Some people find it downright dangerous because it's all unfiltered, and you know, and it's it produces misinterpretations and things like that. I think the one thing that you have to conclude, though, is that from the president's perspective, there's almost always a purpose behind it. Right now, he wants to go on the attack against Barack Obama because he has decided that. Barack Obama basically uh, maybe wiretapped his phones in Trump Tower, and he's going to basically portray him as somebody who treated him uh, badly. So there's a motivation. There's always, almost, almost always a motivation. So you have to figure out where is it coming from and what's the motivation at the same time. You know what I find kind of interesting about this? He is the president. Mm. He has access to all the most highly classified uh, information uh, within the U.S. government. So he puts out a tweet and says President Obama is tapping his phones, and he calls for a congressional investigation. Doesn't he already know that? If, he, if he's making the assertion that uh, President Obama is tapping his phones, if he's getting that, gov- that information from a credible source, he must already know that. So why does he want the Congress to investigate it? It's a puzzle. It, it, it is, is a puzzling thing. The, the, the fact is, and this is why this is complicated and, and why it's not as simple as a tweet suggests, if the FBI decides it wants to tap somebody's phone, it has to go to a court and get a court order. That court order is actually secret. The FBI has to tell the Justice Department. It may or may not tell the White House what it's doing. So it's possible the White House doesn't know that the FBI has done something. So maybe Barack Obama didn't know and maybe Donald Trump doesn't know. It's possible but it is odd to say something publicly without apparently attempting to find out what the truth is, and that seems to happen all the time. But I think a lot of this is because it's for political posturing. It's not really a, an attempt to convey information. It's an attempt to assume a political position. At the Journal, have you as yet found any information to validate this uh, charge no. that he is making? No. No. And we've tried, you know, because there was a, a – the roots of this actually come in a, a one very strange re- news report that came out uh, months ago from one online publication that asserted that there had been a, an attempt to get a court order for a wiretap. That was denied. And then subsequently a court order to monitor a computer in Trump Tower. One report. Um, you know, as you'd expect, our reporters have chased that, have not been able to confirm that that's true. And even that report never said there was a wiretap. It said there was an attempt to get a wiretap, but it was denied by the court. So where this all comes from is a genuine mystery, but really legitimate hard reporting has not proven that any of it's true yet. Andrew. Thanks, Bob. And Jerry, you know, speaking of legitimate hard reporting, it seems like every day some news organizations breaking a news story. Often it's the Washington Post, it's the New York Times. And it seems to me the Washington Post and the New York Times keep score as to how they're doing by who breaks what story. How do, how do you guys keep score at the Journal? Well, we do the same. I mean, I'll give you a good example. There was a story that several of the stories, including what the um, FBI had learned from its surveillance of Michael Flynn, the national security advisor, in his conversations with the, the Russian ambassador that we broke about the same time that the Post did. And, you know, it's everybody wants to break news. And I think that one of the things that's happened is that the White House is kind of 
pretty focused on the New York Times because it has singled out the Times as its enemy. So when the Times has a story, it not only has a story, it gets attacked by the White House for being the enemy of the people. Um, the and failing so New York Times. The failing New York Times. So it has had the effect, I think, of shining a brighter light on some of the things that the Times is doing. But I think we're all basically in the same business and we're all trying to break news at the same time um, and through similar channels. And uh, how are you going about, are, are, have you put more investigative people on the, on the case in Washington? Have you devoted more resources to covering the different agencies? How are you doing this? Well, yeah, I mean, we have. Well, for, for example, I mean, for starters, because the White House is, it's just been a fire hose of news out of the White House and, and very hard to track. We've doubled the number of people we have at the White House now versus before uh, the Obama administration came in. Um, and, we're, and we're having to beef up in uh, Justice Department intelligence, FBI coverage, because you know the whole Russia hacking story, whether the Russians did or didn't interfere in the 2016 election, if they did so, how did they do so? And who is going to find out? Is it going to be congressional investigative committees? Is it going to be the FBI? Is it going to be an outside committee? Is it going to be a special prosecutor? All these questions are in the air, but they kind of tell you as a news manager that going forward, you're going to need you're going to need extra resources in this space to to follow those stories because um, that's where the action is going. And so I think that you know, whereas the news business is shrinking in some areas in Washington for big organizations like the Journal. It's actually a growth industry right now. You talk about uh, increasing the number of White House correspondents. What, you had two before and now you've gone to four? Actually, we had three before and now we have six. Six? Yeah. You're going to six. So yeah. you're right up there with the New York Times and I think the Washington Post has seven. I, th- <laughs> I, think, I think that's right from what I've heard. Yeah, we're all, we're all kind of in the same spot. And CNN has gone up too, by the way, because they have the same kind of – you know, 24-7 mandate that the newswires do. Somebody's got to be awake to read the tweets. Well, it's true. I mean, somebody has to be uh, on duty at about 6 a.m. now just to be on Twitter patrol, you know, which is something we've never had to do before. Never had that beat before, but here we are. (laughs) Uh, As we're recording this, uh, WikiLeaks has apparently made another big dump. Have you all found anything of interest in that? And in, in a more general way, how do you treat information you get from WikiLeaks? You know, this is a really tricky one because I think a lot of the information that comes from WikiLeaks has turned out to be valid, which is to say they're genuine documents. They're not made up. They're not hoaxes. Whether they're newsworthy is a different is a different question. And just because WikiLeaks puts it out, do you have to cover it? Is, or should you exercise your news judgment and decide whether this is a news story or it's not, and based on the merits, not just because WikiLeaks made a splashy release of classified information. Because, you know, in the normal gathering of news, one of the things you do is you learn a lot of things that you decide aren't really that important or aren't really newsworthy, and you walk past those and focus on the things that you deem to be important. I think we have to apply the same standards to WikiLeaks. The the current uh, WikiLeaks dump that you're talking about is one in which – uh, they purport to have uh, found or been given, frankly, they're saying they were given them by somebody, a whole trove of documents that show how the intelligence community manages to break into cell phones, essentially, break into people's personal communications. It, the fact that the, that is out there is newsworthy. Is the, Are the details of how that these documents say that happens, is it that newsworthy? Is that proper to put out into the public domain? It's a tough question. You know, the fact is, if WikiLeaks produces it, and dumps it out, it is already in the public domain. So it's, uh, you know, some of the normal standards get thrown out the window because it's already been published effectively by an organization that's not even a news organization. You know, uh, one of the things is of interest to me with these so-called document dumps that we're getting now. I mean, 
in the years when I covered the Pentagon, and this was back in the Vietnam days, mm-hmm. in the Cambodia days, you know, I would occasionally run across information. People would tell me things that were obviously classified. And sometimes I didn't use the information because it had been given to me by accident. Yeah. I recall one very specific case. I didn't use it because for the simple reason it would have put American lives in danger had I published it, and there was not that much news in it anyway. Do you all apply that kind of a standard uh, as well when you're looking at things like this latest yeah. uh, WikiLeaks? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good point. I, you know, I think there is a standard question that we have had to wrestle with over the years, and I don't think it's changed just because the flow of information has changed, which is, is it newsworthy and is it is it something that needs to be reported uh, because the public has a right to know, or is there a countervailing argument for withholding publication, or at least withholding all the details? And, and there are have been multiple occasions which I, as a bureau chief, get a call from somebody in the government asking us not to publish something because it will put somebody's life at risk. And sometimes, frankly, that's a very valid argument. Sometimes it's a bit hooked up because they really don't want something published because it's embarrassing, not because it's truly uh, dangerous or or is uh, life-threatening. One of the things you do as a journalist is you make tough decisions on those things. But we have our, our view has been we've always listened and we have basically held back on either publication of something or at least on some details that we've been asked not to disclose because we just, we have determined there was a legitimate reason to make the argument it shouldn't be published. And because perhaps the details aren't important to the reader, um, the story can be told without those. And so that's, I think, the kind of filter that news organizations have and should continue to apply on rare occasions. I think basically everybody who's in the news business has the same basic impulse, which is if you know it, you should publish it um, unless there's a really powerful argument not to. Yeah, and you're also under increasing pressure to get it out quickly. Well, well, they, they, we are, and I'll, I'll give you a good example. You had asked earlier about scoops. I mean, the one of the interesting scoops in the last, uh, in recent days, was the one that said that Attorney General Sessions had, in fact, had a couple of meetings with the Russian ambassador during the campaign period after having told the uh, uh, Senate committee that was holding his confirmation hearings that he hadn't had any meetings with the Russian ambassador. We had that story. The Washington Post had that story. Same time, same night, we were both waiting for a statement from the Justice Department uh, before going with the story because basic, a basic principle of journalism is you give somebody a chance to comment on something like that uh, so they, their side of the story is included. We got it. They got it. They pushed the story out a few minutes before we did, and it became the Washington Post scoop instead of the Wall Street Journal scoop, but, which is very frustrating for us. But that's the, that's the news environment we live in now. You know, we used to think about you know, a news cycle of a day. Now it's a news cycle, not even of an hour, but of minutes, and it's it's the world is moving that quickly, and we, you can't complain about it. You just have to cope with it because that's reality right now. So, how many times typically does a story get filed per day now? The same story? Yeah. You know that's that varies, but it's a really interesting question because you might have, um, um, you know, for example, there is a. There are confirmation hearings going on uh, these days for Trump uh, nominees. They start in the morning. They tend to run on for a while. Uh, There's a confirmation hearing going on right now for the deputy attorney general, which is a very hot topic because he's going to be the guy who's in charge of the Russia investigation since Attorney General Sessions has recused himself. Uh, That starts at 10 in the morning. By noon, we want to have a story up on our website. But the hearing goes on, and so there will likely be a mid-afternoon 
update of that story, a new version, and then uh, an end-of-the-day version that will be the one that goes to print. So it's not unusual for the same story to now have three lives in the same 24-hour span, which is quite a change from when, you know, when I started, there was one story. You wrote one story at the end of the day, wrapping up everything, filed it. It was put into print that night, and that was journalism. And now it's uh, it's more akin to what we used to think of as newswires reporting, but uh, as it's a deadline a minute, as we were talking about earlier. Do you see this, this whole situation leveling out in any way? I mean, some people would describe this administration right now in total chaos. Yeah. The administration takes exception to that. They say things are running smoothly. Clearly, they're not running smoothly, but they may not be in chaos. Yeah. But do you see this – where do you see all this going? You know, I've been telling people for weeks now that I think that over time and inevitably things tend to revert closer to the norm. You know, that's just what happens. Things calm down. People figure out. People who are new to the, to the administration, new to government, which is true of many of the Trump people. They're not just new to the administration. They've never worked in government before. Figure out that the way things were done before – Maybe those things are done that way for some good reason that they've only just discovered. And so I think it will revert closer to norm, uh, but will never be entirely normal because Donald Trump is not an entirely normal political figure by his own admission. And, 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 and you know, he's proudly not a normal politician, so it'll never be normal. You know, by the same token as the news speeding up, You've also done something at the Journal that's fascinating to me and done it really effectively well. It's so old, it's new. You have newsletters that lead yeah. the day. I mean, I'm up every night looking for the story that gets posted at 9, 10 p.m. that's going to run in the paper the next morning, and it's keeping me up because I can't wait to read it. But most people are seeing it for the first time in their inbox in the morning in the form of your newsletter, Capital mm-hmm. Journal, or uh, Jerry Baker, your uh, your managing editor's mm-hmm. uh, Ten Point, which is a really successful newsletter. Tell us about the journal's uh, adventures into it's so old, it's new, and how that's worked out. This is a really interesting topic. And in fact, I was just looking at some numbers today on this. Uh, the number of people who are signed up, subscribed, for our Washington newsletter, the Capital Journal Daybreak newsletter, has gone up more than 10 percent since uh, since January, since the Trump administration was coming to town. It's just a reflection of the intense amount of interest. And what we found is that in Washington in particular, but not only in Washington, this is in fact how people uh, are receiving their information. They want to know what's in the journal in a nutshell. And what we're trying to do in a newsletter is give them what's in the journal in a nutshell. Then they have the the opportunity, and we make it as easy as we can for them, to go from the journal in a nutshell to the specific stories in the newsletter. Um, it's not really unlike sitting at your breakfast table leafing through the newspaper. You're just doing it on a screen in an e- with an email that has the summary for you. And it is a way, I think, that we just have found a new delivery, a vehicle for delivering our news to people. You know, it's you can throw the paper on somebody's porch or you can give them an email and the, they, they both carry the same stories. Uh, and they give you the same opportunity to choose, pick and choose which ones are important to you that morning. In Washington, it turns out that, as you suggest, that is the way a lot of people consume news in the morning. They want the summary, they want it in a nutshell, and then they pick and choose. And it's become a very powerful delivery vehicle in this town in particular. Do you think it's opened up the paper for a lot of people? Oh, I think I, I think the uh, look, I think online journalism has opened up the paper for a lot of people, period. I, I actually think, we're at the beginning of a kind of a renaissance. Um, 
because the the uh, uh, the ease with which you can access stories 24 hours a day, not just once a day when you get a paper product, is liberating. And I don't, you know, a lot of us in the business thought of this as a problem for a long time. I think we have to start thinking of it as a huge opportunity, and I think we're starting to. What we've tried to do is basically turn our thinking upside down. You know, the, the used to walk into our bureau, the Washington Bureau of the Wall Street Journal, like every bureau in Washington, I suppose, thinking at nine o'clock in the morning of what you're going to put in the paper that night. If you if you are of my vintage, that's how your mind works. We've all had to basically turn it around. You start thinking about what are we going to put online starting at 9, 30, 10, 11, 12 o'clock during the day, and then just assume at the end of the day, we'll figure out what summary of all those things ought to be committed to print for the next morning. They're just It's just a different way of thinking about the world, but it involves turning it upside down in your own brain in a lot of ways. Once you do it, it's quite liberating to think of the world that way. We're now getting far enough away from this election, mm. uh, which to my mind, was the single most unusual election. As you look back on it now, what, what do you make of it? What, what did we learn? Where does it go from here? What, what state is our electoral process in right now? Well, it's in turmoil, I would say. And I think we learned a couple of things. I think we learned that the two parties are being transformed each and maybe becoming less relevant. I wrote a long piece for our review section a couple of weeks ago looking at whether the two national parties uh, are in a state of identity crisis. I mean, Republicans have nominated a populist who's not really a traditional conservative and not all that friendly in all cases to some of the business community's desires as their nominee, and he went to the conservative political action conference two weeks ago and said, from now on, the Republican Party will be known as the party of the worker. That's the Republican. And, you know, the Democrats are basically the, the a lot of the energy in the Democratic Party comes from Bernie Sanders, who's not really a Democrat at all. He's basically an independent. Donald Trump's not a Republican conservative. He spent more time in the last two decades as a Democrat or independent than he did as a Republican. And Bernie Sanders is not really a Democrat at all. And they're the might be the two most energizing figures in the two parties. So what does it mean to be a Democrat and Republican? And what does that mean about who those parties nominate to be president? Um, I think there's a going to be a very interesting struggle politically to determine what it means to be a populist, because both parties are basically now being driven by populist impulses. And what's the difference between a conservative populist and a liberal populist? And I just think if you compare that to, say, the 1990s when it was a kind of a Bill Clinton, third-way, middle-of-the-road Democratic Party, and a fairly conservative but not radically conservative Bush version of the Republican Party, we've just moved on to new ground in both parties. And I don't know where that goes three or four years from now. Um, I do think that Democrats had better figure this out and figure out how to get themselves organized because uh, they've lost a lot of ground. How did it come down to Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump this last time? Well, I think it came down to Hillary Clinton because she was basically over, able to overpower a lot of the impulses we're talking about here, that she, she was the establishment figure who managed to hang on. But if you think about it, she hung on by her fingernails. I mean, who would have thought that she was going to have trouble putting down Bernie Sanders? And by the way, Let's just fantasize here. What if Joe Biden had run? What if Joe Biden, a vice president, a kind of a more of a working man's Democrat, had decided to run? Maybe it would have been his year. Maybe Hillary Clinton wouldn't have been the nominee. And I think Donald Trump won because he either figured out or just happened to walk through the door at the precise right moment when being the establishment figure was no longer the ticket to success in the Republican Party. It could have been somebody else, I suppose. It happened to be him. 
And that's how we got those two figures. And I think that if the Democrats had it, frankly, if you shot a Democrat with truth serum, they'd probably tell you, if we had to do over again, we'd pick somebody other than Hillary Clinton, because it turns out being the very embodiment of the political establishment was the worst possible profile for 2016. That's what we learned, I think. Well, uh, we saw that on the Republican side where Mr. Bush raised $150 million, Jeb Bush, and he got nowhere. For the first time, $150 million meant absolutely nothing. Right. And if in the end, the the last two Republicans standing were really Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, they were the the two least friendly to the Republican establishment of all the 16 people who ran. So if you think about it, it wasn't just Donald Trump. It was the fact that anybody who looked as if he had been part of the process before and wasn't attacking the process was out of favor. And so you had the, the two least friendly Republicans to the establishment, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, as the last two standing. And that tells you something, too. And so why did Donald Trump win in the end? Was it he was he just the agent of change? Was he the new and she was the old? I think that was part of it. Part of it was simply the one thing, the one consistent thing that Donald Trump conveyed and got through to people both during the campaign and, frankly, also since he's uh, taken office, is that he could be the agent of change. He could change things. He would change things. That was powerful enough, I think. The other thing that I think he figured out that a lot of us didn't appreciate entirely was that he tapped into this sense of insecurity that was born of a feeling that economic globalization and technological change had knocked the economic legs out from under a whole bunch of people, particularly in the Midwest, but not only in the Midwest, that the sense that even if I have a job, I'm not secure in it, even if my town is doing okay, it's lost a lot of ground, and that's because economic forces that nobody in Washington is trying to control, trade and and the, the advent of technology, job-killing technology, have gotten in the way, and somebody needs to do something about it. And Donald Trump figured out that that was a winning message before anybody else did. You know, uh, I talked to your the guy who runs your poll, Peter Hart, mm-hmm. and uh, he said, you know, the, the 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 polls were right about the about the popular vote. The CBS poll, the Wall Street Journal poll, they were all about about right on getting that part right. But he said what happened was they stopped polling too soon at the state level. He also had some real problems with some of these state polls and and their methodology. But he said if you go back and look at it now. Uh, you will understand that he was starting to move right there at the very end, that he was getting that vote of people that didn't really like either one, yep. and suddenly uh, they were they were moving to him. And he talked about how Hillary Clinton's campaign stopped polling in October. What do you think as – and I know you're heavily involved in the poll and they're from the journal. What do pollsters need to do the next time around? Well – I, first of all, I think the uh, I think Peter's right, and as you can imagine, we've talked about this a lot. I think a lot of what happened in polling was a failure of imagination, which is to say, if you looked at the numbers, you could actually see what was going to happen. It just we couldn't quite believe it was going to happen. So, so Hillary Clinton does win the popular vote. We all had that figured out, but I think everybody, certainly, I told myself that you could see in the polling numbers the power of the Trump message. But you could also see the deep flaws of the messenger, that people perceived a guy they didn't really trust, didn't really like. And conventional wisdom told you that the flaws of the messenger would overpower the appeal of the message. And that's not what happened. The flaws of the messenger turned out to be secondary to the power of the message. And that had just never happened before. 
I think what, what, we, what we've decided we have to do is we have to be careful that we're not missing people in polling. Um, you know, some of the people who voted for Donald Trump are the hardest people to get in polling to some extent. They don't trust the media. They, they're not used to communicating. They refuse to talk to you. They, some of them don't have cell phones. They're not reachable that way. They're, so first thing you got to do is make sure you're finding everybody. The second thing I think we have to do is stop trying to treat a poll like it's a baseball score sheet. You know, you're not, we're not trying to figure out the, the score at the bottom of the seventh inning. Think of a poll as a way to figure out trend lines not absolute outcomes. Because I think when we try to decide whether you know, Hillary Clinton's going to win the popular vote by 2.8% or 3.2%, we're missing the whole point of the poll. That's not, gonna, that's not what it should do. And when we try to make it do that, we're making a mistake and we're going to have egg on our faces sometimes. Jerry Seib of the Wall Street Journal. And you're telling us today that the wall is still in place the still at the there. Wall Street Journal. And that's very good news. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jerry. My pleasure. For Andrew Schwartz, this is Bob Schieffer. Thanks for listening. Is it a physical attraction? Is it sexual satisfaction? Is it long life together? Whoa, going through all kinds of weather. Is it holding each other's hands? Making all kinds of plans. Never, never saying goodbye. Never, never making each other cry. Love is all the above. That's what love is. Everything underneath the sun That's what love is ah, All of the above Is it a walk in the park? <laughs> or is it kissing in the dark? Is it strolling in the rain? Is it joy or is it pain? If blood really the answer, then what could be the question? I look in the sky and I pray Love is all the above That's what love is Love is everything Underneath the sun That's what love is
That's what's moving. 